We continue our journey uh, through the Old Testament, and we can't even really call it a journey yet because we've only just begun. Last Sabbath was our introduction, and so really, this is our first presentation sermon in earnest in which we're going to be unpacking and looking at the actual text of the Old Testament. And uh, there's really no other place that you could probably responsibly begin but in Genesis chapter 1 with the issue of creation. And uh, we're going to begin with a word of prayer. And you might be thinking today as the, as the message proceeds, wow, this is a fairly informationally dense presentation. Well, I wanted to let you know that you're only getting 10% of what I want to tell you. All right? So you're getting just the tithe today, just the tithe. So we're going to have a prayer, and then we're going to get right into this. It's going to be great. Father in heaven, we are so thankful. This has already been an awesome service. Father, we've learned about Mika, the chicken. We have had opportunity to return offerings. We've heard about our modern-day Philip, who's going to places afar to preach the gospel. We've been encouraged by the upcoming program that Alicia and the team are conducting. Father, we have already been ministered to. We have sung. We have prayed. We have been drawn into your presence. Uh, Now, as we turn our attention to Scripture, we pray that you would be with us in a special way, in a spiritual way. Father, we have people that can't be here today. I even had somebody send me an email this week, say, please, don't start the series today. But Father, today we're just beginning this journey. We're excited. And as we look at these formative chapters in Scripture, these initial chapters, Genesis chapter 1, Genesis chapter 2, Father, may we see these not as passages describing only antiquity, the dusty old past, but Father, may that ancient past come right down into our modern situation. Come and speak to us minister to us, and may we sense and feel your love today through the great truth of creation. We look forward to what you have in store for us today. In Jesus' name, let all of God's people say, amen. Amen. All right, so we're going to be talking about creation today. Let's start by just quickly sort of bridging our last sermon series, which was on the book of what? We just finished studying the book of Acts. Let's bridge the book of Acts the early church, the apostolic church, with the Kingscliff Church in 2015, all right? Notice these four passages, all taken from the book of Acts. The first is in Acts chapter 4, verse 24. It says, they raise their voice to God. How do they do it, everyone? With one accord, right? We see that over and over again in the book of Acts. They were with one accord. They raised their voice to God with one accord, and they said, watch this now, the early church, Lord, you are God who made heaven and earth and the sea and all that is in them. That is a virtual identical quotation of Exodus chapter 20, verses 8 to 11, the little section there in verse 11. In other words, it's a quoting of the Sabbath command. When the early church praised God, they used the language of Exodus, they used the language of creation. In in Acts chapter 14, verse 15, it says, you should turn from these useless things. Remember, this was Paul there in Lystra urging them not to try and offer sacrifices to he and Barnabas who were not gods at all. No, they said, you should turn from these useless things to the living God who made the heaven, the earth, the sea, and all the things that are in them. That's another almost identical quote lifted in the Greek from Exodus chapter 20. So we see the early church here, the apostolic church, took creation very seriously. In our third quotation here from the book of Acts, notice this, Acts 17, verse 24, this is Paul preaching to the Athenian philosophers. He said, God, who what? What's that next word? 
who made the world and everything in it, since he is the Lord of heaven and earth, does not dwell in temples made with hands. And so today, in 2015, we are standing very much in the same vein. We are standing in the heritage of the apostolic church who understood that central to who God is and central to who the church is is this idea that God is the creator. He's the creator of the earth and the heavens and the seas and all that is in them. Now, I want to begin by sort of giving this quotation here. In addition to the book of Acts, I want to give this very short quotation from one of the founders of the Seventh-day Adventist Church, a woman by the name of Ellen White. And I was reading this just this morning, actually, through this into the presentation, and it just struck me with how blessed and fortunate and privileged we are to know the text of Scripture, not to be wallowing around and groping around in the darkness wondering what's really true. Are we, you know, in some giant alien test tube or are we, uh, you know, the products of some microevolutionary process? Look at this, it says, without the Bible we would be bewildered by false theories. The mind would be subjected to the tyranny of superstition and falsehood. But having in our possession an authentic history of the beginning of our world, we need not hamper ourselves with human conjectures and unreliable theories. I mean, I tell you, we need to just every now and again remind ourselves at how blessed we are to know and to believe these words that are on the screen there. The opening passage in all of Holy Writ, in the beginning, say it with me, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. Right? Just There's, there's a solidity there. There's an anchor there. There's a, there's a sense of purpose. There's a sense of direction. There's a sense of meaning. And it's all found in the opening sentence of Scripture. I love what she says there that we don't have to be ruled by the tyranny of superstition and falsehood, but we can have a sense, hey, we know why we're here and we know who is the one that made us to be here. Today we're going to talk about creation. And we're going to go to Genesis chapter 1 because in Genesis chapter 1, of course, we are introduced to God, God who is the creator. And we're going to start there. We're going to notice several things, several patterns, several sort of cycles that take place in Genesis chapter 1, then we'll branch over into Genesis chapter 2. There is certainly continuity and consistency between the opening chapters of Genesis, but there are also differences. And in Genesis chapter 1, we have a very sequential treatment. We have a very thematic treatment. It goes from the first day to the second day, the second day to the third, the third to the fourth. It moves sequentially, thematically, chronologically through the creation account. But when we get to Genesis chapter 2, it ceases to be so sequential. Not that it's not sequential, but it's not, it's not strictly sequential. It becomes relational. Right? So Genesis chapter 1 and 2, there have been some over the years that have tried to introduce a tension here. There have even been some on the very liberal end of the scholarly spectrum that have suggested that there were two different writers here, that there was a writer of Genesis 1 and there was a different writer of Genesis 2. But in fact, if we will simply appreciate Genesis 1 for what it is and then Genesis 2 for what it is, we'll see that here in Genesis 1 it's largely sequential, it's very thematic, and in Genesis chapter 2 it becomes very relational, and we'll see that in just a bit. Genesis chapter 1 is characterized by a number of repeated phrases, and these phrases come up again and again. Let's just read the opening little bit here of Genesis chapter 1. We've just finished quoting the first verse, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, verse 2, and the earth was without form and void, and darkness was upon the face of the deep. 
The Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. Then God said, you'll notice that's our first phrase here. That phrase occurs again and again in Genesis chapter 1. If you look at the first little phrase of verse 6, then God said. The first phrase of verse 9, then God said. Verse 11, then God said. Verse 14, then God said. Verse 20, then God said. Verse 24, then God said. This is a theme. It's, it's, a, it's a literary device that Moses keeps going back to again and again. Then God said. And notice that in the case of verse 3, it says, Then God said, let there be what? What was the first thing that was created? Let there be light. And immediately, there was light. And God saw the light, that it was good. And God divided the light from the darkness. God called the light day. And the darkness he called night. So the evening and the morning were the first day. Let's just read a little further on. We'll encounter some of the other phrases. Verse 6, here's our first phrase again. Then God said, let there be a firmament or a space in the midst of the waters. Let it divide the waters from the waters. Thus God made the firmament. That's an unusual word, firmament. You could just insert the word sky or the word heaven. Some translations actually say that. Thus God made the sky and divided the waters which were under the sky from the waters which were above the sky. Here's another phrase, and it was so. Notice that's number two here. And it was so. There's this sense of immediacy. There's, there's no sense in Genesis chapter 1 that there's any kind of a delay, that there's some lack of punctuality. No, when God says it, and it was so. And God said, and it was so. And God said, and it was so. There's an immediacy there, and there is a frequency. There's no delay. There's no sense in which there is a pause or a truncation between the two. God says it, and then it happens. God said, let there be light, and there was light. Okay? Now, notice our third phrase here. It's a phrase that's going to come up here in verse 10. We'll jump down to verse 8 first. It says, and God called the sky heaven, and the evening and the morning were the second day. Then God said, let the waters under the heavens be gathered together into one place, and let the dry land appear, here's our phrase again, and it was so. And God called the dry land earth, and the gathering together of the water he called seas, and here's our fourth and final phrase, and God saw that it was what? God saw that it was good. So notice the four phrases here on the screen. They are number one, then God said. Number two, and it was so. There's the immediacy. Number three, and God saw that it was good. That phrase comes up again and again. At the end of day number two, God saw that it was good. Day number three, God saw that it was good. Day number four, God saw that it was good. When it comes to the climax, we'll see this in just a bit here at the end of day six, God saw everything that he had made, and it was, does anybody know? It was very good. And then the fourth phrase here is this, the evening and the morning were the first day. The evening and the morning were the second day. Literally in the Hebrew, it says evening, morning, day one. Evening, morning, day two. Evening, morning, day three. So this is what we mean when we say that Genesis chapter one is quite sequential, right? It's poetic, yes, but it's also sequential. And Moses comes back to these phrases again and again to introduce us, introduce us to a picture of God that is simultaneously creative and communicative. Now, I just want to say a word about that. What do we mean when we say that God is introduced to us as communicative? Well, with the resources of omnipotence at his disposal, God could have, had he so desired, just thought the world with all of its idiosyncrasies, with all of its details, with all of its nuances, the complete created earth. He could have just thought it into existence in a moment, in a second, in a fraction of a second. And yet, Scripture reveals to us that what God showed Moses 
was that Scripture took place in an orderly fashion, in a sequential fashion. That God, with great intentionality, and we're going to see this intentionality here in just a little bit because it's an intentionality that is infused with relationality. It, it has to do with the fact that, that God is creating spaces, not just for space's sake, but God is creating spaces for relationship. So he's, he's creating very intentionally. He's creating very sequentially. The very first act that we are introduced to God as performing in all, all of Scripture, if I ask you what's the first thing that God does in all of Scripture, you might be tempted to say he creates, and you'd be mostly right. We just read that in Genesis chapter 1. In the beginning, God created. But what if I ask you this question? How does God create? He speaks. He speaks. The first action that we are introduced to the God of Scripture as performing is speaking. This tells us something gigantic about the person that is God. God longs to communicate. But listen to the next part of that. Why does anyone communicate? Why do you communicate? To what end do you speak? Or for what purpose do you speak? To be understood. You speak to be understood. You speak for companionship. You speak for mutuality. You speak, we could even say, for relationship. Right? So we are introduced here in Genesis chapter 1 to a God who is not only creative, a God who actually creates by means of his voice. He is communicative. Now, a fascinating thing happens. We read Genesis chapter uh, 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. When we fast forward all the way to the New Testament book of John, John, like we talked about Matthew last Sabbath, John actually takes this very language, this very idea, this is clearly, intentionally, purposefully taken right out of of the language of Genesis, and John adopts and adapts that language of Genesis for his own ends and purposes, and he does it in a remarkable way. In John chapter 1, we read these words. What are the first three words? First of all, John chapter 1, John's beginning is gospel. How does he start? In the beginning, and notice this, as we have in Genesis, in the beginning God, right? First four words of scripture, in the beginning God. Look at what John does here. In the beginning was, what are the next two words? The word. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God, and notice right where he goes, the same place that Moses went, all things were, what's the next word? Made through him, and without him was nothing made that was made. Some translations actually render this passage like this, in the beginning was the voice. Well, that sounds like Genesis 1. Genesis 1 says, in the beginning God created. Well, how did God create? And God said, let there be light. And so, in a a very um, similar way, John is just recapitulating what Moses said. In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. How so? By speaking, let there be light, and there was light. In the beginning God, or excuse me, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. All things were made by Him, and nothing was made. Uh, Anything that was made was, was not made except for by Him. It's fascinating, in the Spanish, in the Spanish language, in the Spanish translation, the word for word here, in the beginning was the word, is actually the word verbo, or verbo. In the beginning was the verb. In the beginning was the action. In the beginning was God. Now, 
Jesus, as the New Testament unanimously declares, is God. Not only is he God, according to John 1 and other passages like Colossians 1 and Hebrews 1, he is the instrument through which God created. God created through the word. He created through the verb. He created through the logos. And so back there in Genesis chapter 1, don't imagine when you see Genesis chapter 1 sort of unfolding in cinematic vision before you, don't imagine you seated next to God on a balcony somewhere overlooking from out here as if earth were down there and you were seeing it. No, scholars are virtually unanimously agreed that Genesis was written from the perspective of someone who was on the earth. Not over here on a balcony somewhere looking down, but actually on the earth looking up as the various events of creation unfolded before him. No doubt what God did for Moses is showed him in cinematic vision exactly what took place in creation. He took him back and he showed him in almost an IMAX theater, if you've ever been in one of those IMAX theaters where you sort of sit down and some of them even lean the chair back and this dome of a screen sort of goes all the way around you. It even has kind of the feel that it goes behind you. And if you get one of those really fancy ones, the chairs will shake and even some have mist that comes down on you at certain times. And I mean, Moses had the immersive IMAX experience of creation. And he records it not as an external observer from afar. He records it as being there. Now, as we continue, some really interesting things unfold here. I want to start by just sort of giving a parenthetical statement here about the nature of the days. I mentioned just a moment ago that the, the Hebrew is, is evening, morning, day one. Evening, morning, day two. In our English translation, it's rendered as what's called an ordinal, which is first, second, third, fourth, as opposed to a numeral, which is one, two, three, four. It's rendered as an ordinal, and there's this fascinating little formula in the Hebrew that's very similar to the formula in the English. Let me just explain that. In the English language, the word day can mean a variety of different things, a variety of different lengths of time. For example, if I say that I went to the motor vehicles department and I was in line all day, you would not understand that to mean a literal 24-hour period. You would understand that to mean a long period of time, long relative to the event that I'm describing. If I say, oh, we had a bunch of guests come over to our house and there were so many dishes when it was done, it felt like I spent all day washing the dishes. Again, you don't understand that in a literal 24-hour sense. The Hebrew is the same way. The word day, Hebrew yom, can also be used in a sort of general sense. But here's here's the interesting formula. As with the English, so too with the Hebrew. When the word day, or the Hebrew yom, is modified by either a numeral, one, two, three, four, or an ordinal, first, second, third, fourth, it always, what word did I say, everyone? It always means a literal 24-hour period. For example, if I say to you, I'm going to go away to Lord Howe Island with my wife for seven days, you would not understand that to mean seven indefinite days not well-defined periods of time. You would understand that to mean seven 24-hour periods because the moment that I modify day by a number, it automatically means 24-hour period. So too in the English, so too in the Hebrew. It's the same. So with that in mind, notice what... I'm just going to give you two little parenthetical statements here. 
what two very well-known Hebrew scholars have remarked about this. And you might be thinking, well, why pray tell spend even a moment on this? Isn't it obvious that these are six literal days that were contained within a chronological stream of history? The answer is yes. It's obvious perhaps to you, and it's obvious to me. But there are some who would love for Scripture to be a little more elastic, a little more liquid, a little more fluid, so that if necessary, they could insert much longer periods of time, perhaps hundreds of years or even thousands, or some would love to be able to insert millions or multiplied millions of years into the scriptural account. Does the language allow for that? Let's see what the scholars say. In the handbook of Seventh-day Adventist theology, William Shea writes this, it has been suggested that these were not literal 24-hour days, but long ages through which the earth and the elements in it evolved to their later state. Notice this. The language of the date formula excludes this possibility. There were ways to communicate that in the Hebrew, but this is not one of them. There can be no doubt that the writer was speaking of the 24-hour period of light and dark, which make up one whole day. Now, you might be inclined to say, oh, come on, give me a break. That's from the Seventh-day Adventist Handbook of Theology, and you, Seventh-day Adventists, by virtue of your very name, clearly take this whole Seventh-day thing very seriously. And so you're quoting one of your own scholars in one of your own books to this effect. Now let me quote for you a very interesting quotation. This is from a guy named James Barr. James Barr has since passed away, but he is an extremely well-known scholar. At one time, he was the head of the theology department at Oxford University. He's taught at a number of various uh, theological institutions or had taught over his life. And uh, he was a, a, a scholar's scholar, okay? And he was asked on one occasion, hey, what about these days of Genesis 1? What, a, what about this literal flood in Genesis 6, 7, and 8? What, what about that? Now, this is a key point to understand. James Barr himself was a fairly liberal scholar and did not believe in a literal six days of creation, neither did he believe in a worldwide flood, okay? He didn't believe that. But here's the point. Watch the integrity and the honesty with which he deals with the grammar of the text. He believed that Moses was saying what Moses was trying to say, six 24-hour periods plus the Sabbath, seven 24-hour periods. He just thought Moses was wrong. But notice the grammar, the grammar, going outside of our church, outside of those that would be sympathetic to our perspective. James Barr says, probably so far as I know, there is no professor of Hebrew or Old Testament at any world-class university who does not believe that the writer or writers of Genesis 1 to 11 intended to convey to their readers that, ideas that, number one, Creation took place in a series of six days, which were the same as the days of the 24 hours that we now experience. He says, everybody believes that, that they were trying to communicate that. B, number two, the figures contained in the Genesis genealogies provided provided by simple addition, a chronology from the beginning of the world up to later stages in the biblical story, the descendants of Adam. Three, or C, Noah's flood was understood to be a worldwide Flood was understood to be worldwide and distinguish all human and animal life except for those in the ark. Or to put it negatively, listen carefully, the apologetic arguments which suppose, suppose that the days of creation to be as long eras of time, the figures of years not to be chronological, and the flood to be merely a lo- local Mesopotamian flood are not taken seriously by any such professors as far as I know. Now, here's what he's saying. It's so fascinating. He says, every 
in every reputable world-class institution, you have your professor of Old Testament, your professor of Hebrew, uh, whatever, your, your Old Testament theologians. He says everybody believes that what the writers of Genesis, or writer in our case, we believe there was just one Moses, what they thought they were communicating was a literal 24-hour period that took place successively and that these were the literal descendants of a literal man and woman named Adam and Eve and that the flood was literally global and that all human life was destroyed. He says everybody believes that. Not that they believe it's true, but that there's no question that this was what the writers were trying to communicate. Now, I don't know where you come from, but, but for me, I'm just going to believe what Moses wrote. Now, I have a variety of reasons for that that I'm not going to go into here, but for our purposes, we want to be very clear that Scripture presents creation very, in a very formulaic way. Day number one, day number two, day number three, and we're going to talk about those days. Then God saw everything that he had made, and indeed it was very good, so the evening and the morning were the sixth day. Now, in this, in this transition in Genesis chapter 1, this sequential transition, we see movement from chaos to order and from incompleteness to completeness. Okay, now let's watch this. Genesis chapter 2, which is disconnected for us in our modern Bibles. We go from Genesis chapter 1, verse 31, to Genesis chapter 2, verses 1 to 3. But that disconnection, you know is not something that was introduced by Moses. Moses didn't write chapter 1, then start chapter 2, then start chapter 3. The chapterization and the divisions of the chapterization and versification of Scripture was added many thousands of years after Moses would have originally written this. So really, Genesis chapter 2 is, is intimately connected to what we've just read in Genesis chapter 1, and this is what it says. Thus the heavens and the earth and all the host of them were... What's that word right there? Finished. We'll come back to that. And on the seventh day, God, what does that work right there? Ended his work, which he had, what's that word? Done. And he rested on the seventh day from all his work. Here we are again, which he had done, past tense. Then God blessed the seventh day and sanctified it, because in it he rested from all his work, which he had created and made in the past tense. There's no question that what's happening here is that Moses is introducing closure. He's introducing what, everyone? closure, completion, finality, that, that there was a day number one, and there was a day number two, and there was a day number three, but now things have drawn to a close. The work is finished. God has created. God has made. It is done. And we talked about this last Sabbath. We'll come back to that in a second. Now, this is a key point, especially for those of us that love to go home on Sabbath and take long naps, because we've been burning the candle at both ends on the first six days of the week, and so we say, hey, I'm just obeying the commandment. How many of us have said this? I'm just obeying the commandment. The commandment says the Sabbath is a day to what? Rest. And I, by taking my nap this afternoon, am operating in obedience to the command. Well, you're being a little elastic there. And let me tell you why. Not that you couldn't take a nap occasionally if you wanted to, but God's Sabbath is not a day to be slept away. And I'm going to talk about why that is. It's very interesting. To rest here does not mean to tire from fatigue, but to cease. The word rest in this case doesn't mean to take a nap. It doesn't mean to slumber. It's not talking about a state of sleep. The word rest means to cease from. God ceased. Well, what did he cease? He ceased working. He ceased making. He ceased creating. And when it comes Sabbath for us, we don't take a nap, though some of us do. 
That's not what you're called to do. There's no injunction to take a nap. The injunction is to cease, to stop, to slow down, and to rest in God's finished work of creation and redemption. Now, in Genesis chapter 1, there are patterns. In addition to the repeated phrases that we've talked about, and it was so, and God said, and it was good, there's also this really fascinating pattern that's been well documented that the days of creation are intimately tied together, but not in, a, not in an easily obvious way. At least not the first time you read them through, you don't immediately see this. But in fact, when you read the Genesis account through, and you compare day one to day four, and day two to day five, and day three to day six, you find that in reality, there is an intimate connectivity between that, that, that God is showing Moses here something that's not only sequential chronologically, one, two, three, four, five, six, but there's an internal organization. So, for example, in day one, God created light. In day four, God creates the greater light and the lesser light. In day number two, God separates the waters, the sky. He, takes the, he makes a sky, the waters that were above and the waters that were below. And in day five, God takes that sky and those waters and he fills them with birds and flying things and fish and sea creatures. In day number three, God gathers the land into a place. And so now there's land. And in day six, God fills the land with the land creatures and the crowning act of his creation, man. So here's another great point. When you pick up the Bible, you can have confidence that this is, in fact, what it claims to be God's Word for a variety of reasons, one of which is there is such a beautiful and internal symmetry and beauty and, and significance to these words, it seems highly unlikely that they would have just been cobbled together or thrown together by someone who was trying to create a creation myth. In fact, in just a bit here, I'm going to show you how the Genesis account differs radically from other ancient Near Eastern creation myths. Now, we mentioned last Sabbath that Matthew opens his genealogy with three 14s. Remember that? There were 14 generations from Abraham to David, and 14 generations from David to the exile, and 14 generations from the exile to Messiah. And we said, hey, what's the significance of three 14s? Well, the significance of three 14s is that it's six sevens. Seven, 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 strongly suggesting that the seventh seven is bringing something to closure, something to completion, something to rest. And we looked at last Sabbath that Jesus had a, a self-understanding of that basic reality when he stood up in Luke chapter 4 and quoted from Isaiah and said, I am come to set at liberty the captives. Jesus knew that in some significant sense, he was not only initiating the jubilee, he was himself the embodiment of jubilee. Now, with that in mind, this sort of closure on the seventh, check this out. Any painter begins with a blank canvas. I had the privilege, oh, a couple weeks ago, of being in the home of a painter right? Joan Brimsmead. She's a beautiful painter, beautiful woman, beautiful painter. And she just had volumes, albums of beautiful paintings that she had created. And her house is, is festooned with all of these beautiful paintings. But every one of those paintings starts like that. It starts with a blank canvas, and it's the, it's the job of the artist, it's the job of the painter to create something, to, to fill that otherwise vacant space. This is exactly 
what takes place in Genesis 1. Let me show you this. In Genesis, we see God creating a series of successive canvases. Just as I introduced a moment ago that there was correspondence between day 1 and 4, 2 and 5, 3 and 6, that correspondence looks like this. God first creates the canvas. The canvas doesn't pre-exist. He creates the canvas because he creates everything, right? The term that's used for this by the theologians and others is ex nihilo. In the Latin, it means out of nothing. So before God creates the bird, before God creates the hippo, before God creates the man, before God creates the sun or the moon, before God creates the stuff, he first makes the canvas into which those things will go. These are the canvases here. We're introduced to them. We've mentioned them already. God creates the canvas of the air by separating the waters above the sky from the waters below the sky. God then creates the canvas of the water by gathering all of the waters underneath the sky into a single place. He then creates the canvas of the land by by separating the waters under the sky from the land under the sky. And now, in the opening days of creation, we don't yet have things in the canvases, but we have canvases. You can just imagine a great master painter. We were just in Queenstown recently. My, my family and, and the Benellos were there, and we had a lovely time, and we spent a day in Queenstown. And there was a painter there whose name escapes me right now. He has a great big gallery, apparently a well-known painter, judging by the cost of his paintings. Must have been reasonably well-known. $100,000 for a painting. And um, the cool thing was, is that he was actually in his studio there in Queenstown painting. Luke, you were just there recently. Did you go into this guy's shop? Luke, where are you at? Did you go into that guy's shop? It was right by the empanada place? No? Okay. Right across from the bathrooms. So here's the thing. There's all these canvases up there. It's very interesting because there would be a cost, and then just next to the cost, it would say, work in progress. Work in progress. Work in progress. And we were like, oh, these things aren't done because they looked very done. But sure enough, here comes the painter in, right? This beautiful, and everything is lit just perfect. The lady that's sort of superintending it, she has this great little remote control where she can dim the lights and raise the lights, turn out the lights. She can have all these, and she's sort of talking to us about the paintings, and I'm thinking, sister, don't waste your breath because I don't have $100,000 to spend on this painting, even though it's beautiful. But she was giving us the pitch, and shortly after she gave us the pitch, the painter comes in. The painter, the painter. And he looked very ordinary, actually. Um, And he had his little cart with all of his brushes and paraphernalia there. And Landon, if you know my oldest son, Landon, you know, he's not afraid of anybody. Everybody that he's ever met is just a friend that he's yet to be introduced to. You know, Landon, boom, straight up to the painter, starts asking him all these questions. Well, I had a few questions that I wanted to ask, but lacking the social bravery that my son has, um, I asked my son to ask him some of those questions. One of the things I wanted to know is, do you ever get this far? Because they were quite big paintings, right? They were big paintings, about as wide as the banner here and, you know, maybe a meter and a half high. Big, beautiful paintings. And um, believe me, they were the kind of paintings that if I had $100,000 of discretionary income, I might buy one. But, but one of the questions I wanted to know is, how far along can you get in the process and wreck the painting? Like, can you get 95% done and ruin it? And so Landon asked that question, and he said, no, that doesn't happen because he paints everything in layers. And then this was the most interesting thing. He told my son that he doesn't paint a painting to completion. He paints 12 paintings a year. 
and he gets all of his canvases all lined up, all 12 lined up. And then he does the first bit of every one. Every painting, he said, consists of somewhere between 30 and 60 layers, right? And so he puts the first layer on all 12 paintings. Then he puts the second layer on all 12 paintings. Then he puts the third layer. And this is why there's never a catastrophic mistake because you can always, when you're in those formative stages, make little changes to the layers. And he layers, and then he layers, and then he layers, and then he layers. But he always starts with a blank canvas. And then he takes his vision, his skill, his creativity, and he, through his hands, his dexterous hands, he projects what's in his mind onto the thing. I think that's really where the difficulty of being an artist comes to. I can see beautiful things in my mind, as most of you can, but my hands won't do what my mind sees. See, the great painters and the great sculptors, they don't have that inhibition. There's no disconnect between this and this. They just... God doesn't just start by making a bird. Well, where would he put it? Where would God put Mika if he had made Mika? I guess he'd put her in a little hutch, right? Or what if God... What would God where would God put Boofhead? right? I thought that's funny. Two children's stories in a row, both on birds. Maybe the next one will be on birds as well. I mean, if God makes a a great blue whale, where does he stick it? Ah. See, Genesis 1 describes God not just starting by making things. He starts by making canvases. He makes the canvas of the air. He makes the canvas of the water. He makes the canvas of the land. And you say, but wait a minute, David. There's a fourth canvas there. And here's the remarkable thing. We're going to come back to this at the very close. God makes another kind of canvas, not a geographical canvas, not a canvas extended in space made of water or air or land. God extends a canvas in time, and that is the canvas of Sabbath. God fills each of those canvases with the air he fills with the greater light and the lesser light and the birds, the water he puts the great sea creatures into, and the land he puts all of the land creatures, including it especially mankind. He creates he fills. He creates. He fills. He creates. He fills. And then when the rest, when the work of, of, when the work of the painter is finished, he creates a different kind of canvas. Not a canvas in space. Not a canvas in geography. He creates a canvas in time. And then he fills it. We're going to see with what he fills it in just a moment. We'll come back to that in just a second. So as we've mentioned, God does not rest from fatigue, but to create a social and spiritual place. That social and spiritual place is called the Sabbath. At this point, we transition to Genesis 2. Look at verse 7 of Genesis 2. Probably no single verse incorporates the difference between Genesis 1 and 2 than Genesis chapter 2, verse 7. Genesis chapter 2, verse 7 says, And the Lord God formed man of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living soul. In Genesis 1, it's as if God is over here, and he is speaking things into existence. He's on the balcony of the universe, and he says, Let there be light. There is light. Let there be a space. There is a space. Let there be, and God is speaking, let there be dry land. The dry land is coming together. So Genesis 1, incidentally, the word that is used for God in Genesis 1 is exclusively the Hebrew word Elohim, which is just sort of the generic term for God. But as soon as we get to Genesis 2, Elohim gives way to Yahweh, the personal name of God. 
And where Elohim in Genesis 1 is over here speaking things into existence as if from afar, in Genesis 2, not the macroscopic picture, but the microscopic picture, in Genesis 2, Yahweh, not merely Elohim as as God, but Yahweh as a person. Yahweh is depicted as forming man, literally sculpting, crafting forming man of the dust of the earth. Yahweh is on his knees. Yahweh has dirt in his fingernails, dirt that he himself had created. Yahweh has rolled up his sleeves. Yahweh has got dirt on his arms, and Yahweh has formed Adam. And as if that isn't sufficiently intimate, as if that isn't sufficiently proximate, then it says, and he breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. There are only three people on planet Earth into whose nostrils I am comfortable breathing. My wife and my two boys. I'll get right up in their, their nostrils if I have to. When my boys were little, one of my favorite things to do, though a little torturous, I admit, <laughs> was to take my whole mouth and place it over the nose of my sons and just to go... And they go, I don't know. You can't take them away now because they're grown. But in some weird sort of ways, my children were little science experiments. And they've turned out mostly all right. You should know that Violetta protested frequently. She was a good wife and a great mother. But I'll get right up in my wife's nostrils. Yeah, I'll get right up close, right? Won't you? Not my wife, but your wife, your husband. Somebody once said, the reason that we close our eyes when we kiss is that no one looks good from that close. (laughs) Right? God here is depicted as being very close. He has formed, he has created, he has fashioned, and now he, he, it would not be an exaggeration to say he kisses Adam. And if you can just imagine God leaning in to take the lifeless cheeks of the sculpture of Adam into his hand. If you can just imagine God leaning in and then placing his mouth right near the nostrils of the inanimate Adam and saying, and as Adam springs amazingly, instantly to life, let me ask you a question. What would be the very first thing that Adam would see as he springs to life? The face of God. There is... Very good reason that when we come to the book of Revelation, the last chapter in the last book of the Bible, there's this verse that says that the redeemed will see God face to face. What was lost will be regained. And so God would have taken Adam that is now alive and looking at this beautiful face and he would have probably leaned back and said, this is for you, my son. You see, Genesis 1, God is speaking from afar, but in Genesis 2, God is proximate, God is intimate, God is close, God is breathing into the nostrils of his Son. God creates a family in his image because God is a family. God as a divine family makes a family in his image, and it's right here that we encounter something that is hugely important about the nature of God but most of us don't dwell in the realms where we're dreaming and thinking and, and sort of ruminating on the nature of God. There are some. We have some budding theologians in our midst. 
But all of us, or most of all of us, dwell in the land of family. That place where mothers and fathers meet and brothers and sisters come and, and where grandchildren come. We all live in that place. And yet that place, that family place, is a window into that other place. That divine place where God dwells. The divine family. Father, Son, and Spirit. And it's in this remarkable creation of something in his own image. Let us make mankind in our image that we encounter something that is hugely significant and not well understood about the relationship between Adam and Eve. In Richard Davidson's great book, The Flame of Yahweh, he writes, the fundamental equality of man and woman is unhesitatingly proclaimed in the first chapters of the Bible. There is no hierarchy. There is equality. In chapter 2, the narrator underscores... Watch this. I didn't know this until this study. In chapter 2, the narrator underscores their equality of importance by employing precisely the same number of words in Hebrew for the description of the creation of man as for the creation of woman. Did you know that? Same number of words. That's going to become hugely significant when you read the next slide. This affirmation of the full equality and mutuality of man and woman in Genesis chapter 2, account of creation, is even more important when seen in contrast with other A&E, that's scholarly speak, for ancient Near Eastern. The other people that dwelt around the Jews, how did they tell the story of creation? Ah, he says, you think it's amazing that, Gen that Moses spent the exact same number of words on Eve as the words on Adam. He says, you think that's interesting, watch this. When you contrast that with other ancient Near Eastern creation accounts, they contain no separate narration of the creation of woman. And here the Bible stands apart. In fact, the Bible's creation story stands apart from other ancient Near Eastern creation myths on a number of accounts, one of which is God is not in conflict with another God and creation is birthed out of this conflict between the gods. No, there is one God and He is willingly, voluntarily, creatively, communicatively making something. But here's this. This is remarkable. Moses spends just as much time describing the creation of Eve in Genesis 2 as he does the creation of man, suggesting, not suggesting, demonstrating that there is a fundamental equality, that the woman is not below, neither is the man above. The woman is not above, neither is the man below. Last slide here to this effect. By its special, lengthy, separate account of the creation of woman in Genesis 2, the Bible, with its high valuation of woman on an equal par with man, is, what is that word right there? Unique in ancient Near Eastern literature. What a remarkable thing. Now, I'm going to skip two slides here, and I'm going to go to this one. I was going to talk to you about sex, but you don't want to hear about that. All right, check this out. Right here. The word used in Genesis 1.27, when God says, let us make man in our image, is the word selem. Let us make man in our selem. This was well known in Hebrew and its related languages. What was a selem to the Hebrews? Well, a selem was used primarily for the images of the gods that were placed in temples. In other words, idols. Selem. What an interesting thing. Watch this. These were thought to represent the appearance and the function of the gods. But the Bible is unique in its use of this word. 
In the ancient world, gods were made in the images of human beings, whereas in the Bible, humans were made in the image of God. You see, you wonder, why is God so against idolatry in the Old Testament? Again and again, God, stay away from idols, stay away from idolatry. God, on one account, said to Moses, Moses, you remind those people they never saw anything on top of the mountain. They can't make a likeness of me. And of course, they tried to make a golden calf. Why was God so insistent and against idolatry for this simple reason? God says, I have already imaged myself on earth. But I didn't image myself in wood and stone and metal. I imaged myself in flesh and blood. I imaged myself in man and woman. And when you bow down to a stone, when you bow down to a piece of wood, when you bow down to a pop star, when you bow down to any of the modern or ancient idols, you are insulting me, God says, but even more so, you are insulting yourself. All right, I got to land this plane. I could go all day. I got to close talking about the Sabbath. I would be remiss as a Seventh-day Adventist if I didn't talk about the Sabbath, but I want to show you the Sabbath in a different way. I want to talk about the Sabbath here. I want to give you a quotation. This is actually not the right quotation here. This is from a book called The Sabbath by Abraham Joshua Heschel. Okay? Jewish philosopher, theologian, and author. And this is what he says. Technical civilization, modern civilization, is man's conquest of space. This is deep, so let this sink in. What are we conquering? We're conquering space. And when we ran out of space to conquer here, we went and conquered outer space. He says, that's that's modern civilization, conquering space. It is a triumph frequently achieved. How do we conquer space? How do we clear a forest and plant an orchard? How do we clear the the blackberries and plant a garden? How, How do we do that? Well, we use time to do it. It is a triumph frequently achieved by sacrificing an essential ingredient of existence, that is to say, time. In technical civilization, we expend time to gain space, to enhance our power in the world of space. That's our main objective. Yet to have more does not mean to be more. To gain control of the world of space is certainly one of our tasks. God gave Adam and Eve the garden, and he said you have dominion over it. But the danger begins when in gaining power in the realm of space, we forfeit all aspirations in the realm of time. This is not an ancient problem. This is a very modern problem. There is a realm of time where the goal is not to have, but to be. Not to own, but to give. Not to control, but to share. Not to subdue, but to be in accord. Life goes wrong, read this, life goes wrong when the control of space, the acquisition of things, becomes our sole concern. See, modern man is consumed with space, and modern man is consumed with the things that fill that space. I went to sleep last night on God's holy Sabbath thinking about what's on the screen there. Oh, I can't live without this camera. The four that I already have are not good enough. Oh, I could spend an hour telling you about this particular camera, the Sony A7S. Look at how the S is in blue. Look at how it matches the blue here. Do you see that? Ah, I just, I'm lusting even as I preach. I'm coveting even now. Someone in my house wants another thing. I'm not the only one that wants a thing. My wife is busy lusting. Hers is a little less mechanical. She cannot stop thinking, talking, and working toward her garden. 
I want one of these, and my wife this last week spent $100 on worm carcasses. <laughs> ah, she wants things. And I got a son, he will not stop talking about this thing. His touch football is scarcely out of his touch. It's always, he's got, he's on, it's at the table. It's in his bed. It's in a conversation. It's at worship. I'm like, stop touching the touch ball. Yeah, but he's running around the house diving here and diving there. The whole life is a touch game. And I think he's winning. (laughs) And then I have another son whose life revolves around the almighty Lego. Now, what is your Sony A7S? What is your Lego? What is that thing, that thing that you've just got to have? I want to close with these quotes, and then I'll let you go. You've been very generous today. We must not forget that it is not a thing that lends significance to a moment. It is the moment that lends significance to things. The Sabbath is entirely independent of the month, and it is unrelated to the moon. Its date is not determined by any event in nature, such as the new moon, but by an act of creation. Thus, the essence of the Sabbath is completely detached from the world of space. The meaning of the Sabbath is to celebrate time rather than space. See, some of us tell our children not to do certain things on the Sabbath, and we have no idea why we're telling them not to do that, except that our parents told us not to do that. And many of us can't come up with good reasons, and so we think there is no good reason. But in fact, there are really good reasons to think of the Sabbath differently. Just this last week, I was talking to John Brinsman, and he said this great thing. He was talking about how we, we have six days to surf, but this day is different. We have six days to think about things and barrels and cutbacks and, 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 and roundhouses. We have six days to think about those things. But then there's another day. Ah, the meaning of the Sabbath is to celebrate time rather than space. Six days a week we live under the tyranny of the things of space. But on the Sabbath we become attuned to the holiness of time. What a brilliant stroke of genius God here creating not a mountain holy, not a place holy, not a river holy like the Ganges. God, because what if the river is holy? What if the mountain is holy? What happens if you get locked up away from the river? You can't get to the mountain. You can't get to the holy thing. But God in his creativity and in his genius, he brings the holy thing to you. If you're breathing, the holy thing comes to you every week. Now it's coming to us, but are we coming to it? Look at this. It is a day on which we are called upon to share. And what we are called to share upon is eternal in time, to turn from the results of creation to the mystery of creation, to turn from the world of creation to the creation of the world. Friends, the beauty of the Sabbath is the same as the beauty of creation. Sabbath points us to creation, creation points us to God, and God points us to relationship. God wraps his arms of love around Adam and Eve. He breathes into their nostrils. He forms them. He crafts them. He longs to be with them. And in the very same way, God longs to be with you. Look at this. I'll skip one last quotation. Have mercy on you. Look at this. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Yes, we say. But what about this? And he was thinking of you. He created a social, spiritual space. Not a space in geography, 
Not a space extended, but a space in time. And God invites you into that space and time to put away the tyranny of materialism, to put away the tyranny of things, to put away the tyranny of want and covetousness and needing more, to put away the tyranny of the culture of the times in which we live, and to just rest in the fact that God is Father and you are His daughter, you are His Son. That is the story of creation. Father in heaven, we recognize you today as creator. Father, the Sabbath is keeping us, but are we keeping the Sabbath? That's a question that every one of us has to face on our own. We have to think about on our own. Father, we can't avoid the Sabbath. It comes to us every week, whether we like it or not. It lands on our door every Friday evening. There it is, staring us right in the face, and God saying, hey, what about, what about today? What happens today? Is this our day? And And sometimes, Father, it is. But other times, we're carried away with the tyranny of the moment, the tyranny of the material, and the tyranny of culture. Father, we want to be revolutionaries. We want to live at cross-purposes with a culture gone mad over sensuality and materialism. Father, we want to be your sons and your daughters living in this, but not of this world. Father, teach us what that means. There's a lot of different homes here. There's a lot of different families here. And every family, every home, every person has to face this question on his or her own. But Father, my prayer as the pastor of this church, both for the long-term members, the new members, and the visitors, Father, my prayer is that when that reminder of creation, here it comes, when that reminder of creation lands on our doorstep next Friday night, that we will not think of it as a duty or as an obligation or as something that prevents us from doing what we really want to do, but that we will see it as that canvas, as that space that you have created, and that we will hear that still small voice saying, my son, my daughter, come apart and rest a while. I created you. I formed you. I fashioned you. I saved you. I love you. Rest with me and in me. In Jesus' name, let all of God's people say, Amen. Amen.